The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome once again to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I am Capital Weekly Editor-in-Chief Rich Eisen, uh, joined as always by my partner in crime, Tim Foster. How are you doing today, Tim? I'm well, Rich. Thank you. Great. Well, we have a special guest with us today. We're really, really uh, grateful to have uh, Rhonda Smith of the California Black Health Network with us. Uh, Rhonda, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Rich. Thank you for having me. Well, and so everybody knows, uh, tell us exactly what is your official title with the network so I don't get that wrong. (laughs) Thank you. So I am the executive director of the California Black Health Network. Okay. I've been in that role for um, full time for about a year, uh, what, year and a half? Not actually, no, since the beginning of 2021. So, two and a half years almost. You know, time, I'm sure as you realized, time since COVID or from the time of COVID has seemed like a blur. So, it's hard to kind of keep track of time and how fast time has been flying by. So, yeah, after, after COVID, time has no meaning. Yes, it really right. has uh, yeah. altered our reality to some extent, hasn't it? And um, while that has been true, what hasn't uh, really been altered are the problems that we're facing. I mean, there are certainly a significant number of them. And so, I, again, I really appreciate you joining us today. I thought maybe you could give us a quick overview of what the mission is of the California Black Health Network. And then uh, from there, you know, I do want to also ask you a little bit about. Uh, the Black Health Agenda, which is a project within the network. So if you don't mind, give us a little bit of background on that. Sure. So I'm happy to report that the California Black Health Network actually celebrated its 40th anniversary this year. And from the very beginning of the organization, the focus has been on improving the health and well-being of Black Californians. And more specifically, over the last uh, two and a half years, Um, we have, in response to COVID and and the impact on the Black community, really thought about how the Black California Black Health Network could be more relevant at that point in time and going forward in the future. So our vision really is to create a California where every African-American and Black immigrant has the opportunity to live a life that is free from racism, violence, and health inequities. And our mission in terms of how we go about realizing that vision and moving towards that every day is to ensure that every Black Californian, really no matter you know where they live, how much money they make, how well educated they are, how they self-identify, or who they love, or whatever their housing status is, has the opportunity to get access to uh, quality, equitable, primary, as well as behavioral health care. Well, and uh, so the Black Health Agenda, as I noted, is a a project within the Black Health Network's uh, mission, and right. my understanding of it, you know, is really looking at um, collaborating with community stakeholders and others on some of the issues that are really critical and specific to the Black community. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. So the Black Health Agenda is our flagship project. Um, the first iteration was published back in 2019, and uh, that consisted of they're really highlighting common health themes or disparities and other health challenges that the Black community was facing at the time. I mean, this time around, it'll be very similar, but also a bit more um, specific in terms of 
coming up with solutions, solutions and actionable items that we can address and move forward on to really close the gap in health disparities and life expectancy in particular for Black Californians. And so that process involves going to 10 counties across the state where we see um, at least five and a half percent of the population in that county being African-American or Black immigrant, and also looking at the Healthy Places Index as a good indicator for what some of the health disparities and key areas of health disparities um, may be in those counties. And so we start the process with engaging key stakeholders in the community and subject matter experts to participate in two parts of when we do the session. We'll actually count on three parts. So we do a landscape analysis first to get a lay of the land in terms of what's happening, what are the key um, and, and top five health disparities that exist within the, those individual counties. And then we host the session where the first part really is talking about the state of Black health in that particular county. And then the second part where that session in the afternoon drills a little bit deeper into the root causes of those inequities. And so both of those sessions in the morning is led by uh, key subject matter experts who lived those experience every day. And then in the afternoon, when we do the deeper dive, it's facilitated by folks who um, have more, again, lived experience specifically, whether it's in cancer or in Black maternal health issues or mental health or the impact of COVID and social determinants of health. So we address the, those issues in the morning part um, by providing information about the state of Black health, and then again in the afternoon doing a deeper dive into those key health conditions that are impacting the Black community. Uh, how would you assess the state of Black health in California? I mean, I know we've had a lot of focus since COVID in particular mm -hmm. on, on disparities uh, nationwide among all kinds of communities, uh, but, you know, looking at California specifically right now, uh, how, how would you assess the uh, lay of the land, so to speak, when it comes to the kinds of things that you're trying to determine when it comes to disparities in, in health care right. and outcome? Well, you know, despite the fact that thanks to the Affordable Care Act and our version of that is Cover California, there are definitely more Black Californians that have health care coverage and access theoretically but we see utilization rates may be different across different populations of people. But despite that, we still see health inequities that exist. We still, still see you know, health disparities continue to be um, a stark difference when we compare what's happening in the Black community to other populations across the state. And again, when you look at sort of an aggregate measure of all of that, which is life expectancy, Black Californians live about five and a half years less than the state average. And if you look at specific populations like the AAPI population, that, that gap is even wider. Um, and so, again, despite the access, um, we're still seeing stark differences in terms of the outcomes that lead to those gaps in life expectancy. And so, unfortunately, from birth to death, literally, and everything in between where we talk about Black maternal health and infant mortality, um, chronic conditions like diabetes, heart disease, hypertension, cancer, whether it's breast cancer, prostate cancer, lung cancer, colorectal cancer, or even rare diseases like lupus and sickle cell. And then looking at end of life issues um, and access to palliative care and, and other things 
um, and in, in that specific arena, we still see differences or disparities and inequities that exist across the board. Well, and certainly one of the things that's impacted the Black community, uh, many communities around the nation. But, uh, you know, let's get to the fentanyl issue because this has been becoming. And, and so in over the last decade or so, I've actually covered this issue around the country quite a bit. And, and for a while, this was predominantly an uh, a northeastern pro- uh, problem, and then it became northeastern and southeastern problem. And by that, I mean northeastern United States, southeastern United States. Then it was upper Midwest, and it really wasn't an issue in uh, in the West that much. Well, that has changed. It has become a very significant issue out here in the West. Um, tell us a little bit about how this this uh, problem is impacting the Black community in California. Right. So to your point, we, we've seen a wave kind of happen across going across the state from east to west and kind of similar. I think we saw maybe that happen more in suburban communities. And again, I think that was because of access in some ways. Um, and now we're seeing that really filter over into communities of color and specifically as it relates to the black community, we definitely have seen an increase in the overdose rate um, over the last few years and definitely since COVID. Um, And when we think about access to alternative methods of dealing with pain, um, it doesn't necessarily exist um, to the same degree that it does, you know, in terms of other, especially more affluent communities. And then also when we talk about or think about access to treatment for addiction to fentanyl or opiates, you know, the access in the average community or Black community, and certainly in more under-resourced or underserved communities, just doesn't exist. And so we know, generally speaking, that, you know, if if you're looking at getting access or into treatment programs, it takes on average about five years longer, right, to get access to um, treatment or get enrolled in a treatment program. And by then, it's way too late. Um, five years seems like a long time, or even a year um, could be a long time, and it could be a matter of life and death. And when we look at, I, you know, what happens even within the uh, prison system, unfortunately, there's the issue exists there. And so, you know, we, you know, it's just I think boils down to, you know, what happens across the healthcare system in general. It's about equity and access. And um, we know that you know access to non-opioid treatments won't become available, or options won't become available until the 2025, and we really need them right now. So, um, you know, we're trying to operate within a healthcare system that isn't always the most effective or efficient um, when it comes to what people really need and getting to the root causes of those issues to begin with. I'm wondering, is some of that too, I mean, we we have seen uh, a lack of uh, healthcare access in uh, rural areas, certainly too, but a lot of uh, lower income urban communities in particular. I mean, how much of that is the problem? Just simply not having uh, even the most basic, uh, you know, healthcare facilities in low income areas or communities of color. Well, we know that when it comes to health outcomes, about 80% of that is attributed to what's called social determinants of health. And that is the environment or community in which someone lives. And we know that, unfortunately, someone's zip code then can often dictate or determine 
the life expectancy of people who live in those communities. So when we think of things uh, like access to healthcare, access to even when we talk about imaging centers, just to get basic screening um, services done or get prescription medications filled or being able to afford that, um, you know, all of those things come into play that um, we sort of coin as social determinants of health that really impact one's ability to access just the basic needs, you know, whether someone lives in a medical desert or a food desert, all of those factors really um, dictate and determine and influence and impact someone's health and well-being and ultimately outcomes that lead to health disparities. So when you say social determinant, uh, that implies that there's a way to change this. It's not a genetic thing. Uh, Can you talk about anything that's going on at the at the legislative level or maybe even a city level that is moving in the right direction and i say that of fully knowing that with the budget uh deficit some of that that may be looking good right now may not actually come to fruition because of the budget uh, but is there anything that you're working on or working with any legislators or other leaders that you feel like might start to to move us in the right direction well i i think you know Governor Newsom has made an attempt to really, uh, with the master plan, address this issue, Um, you know, and that's a great thing. You know, my question, and I guess what I really want to better understand about that and make sure happens, again, relates to equity and what is going to be available for maybe, you know, rural areas uh, or more remote areas where there are, you know, issues um, related to, you know, the opioid crisis and how um, and what resources may be available for folks in those areas and as well as not rural, not just rural communities, but also in other under-resourced communities. You know, let's look at, you know, certain parts of Los Angeles, you know, where I live um, in areas that's called like service planning area eight and six, where we see just in general, um, more under-resourced communities um, and lack of access to, you know, grocery stores or healthcare centers or again just you know basic needs. So I don't know, and I'm not clear about how resources get allocated to communities um, like that. And again, rural communities. I mean, we we kind of you know I sat on the community vaccine advisory committee, the statewide committee that was in place during COVID and. You know, part of our responsibility being on the committee, especially other of my peers who lead other um, health equity related organizations for their specific race and ethnic group, is ensuring that there's equity then in the distribution of, you know, the vaccine. And now how do we ensure that there's equity in the resources that get allocated um, across the state for some of these things that in the infrastructure that he's trying to build? So I you know, we really want to get a better understanding of that and looking at it through a more equitable lens and ensuring that that does happen for the communities who really need it the most, especially when we talk about access to treatment um, or alternatives and trying to prevent overdoses with the naloxone distribution project um, and ensuring that there is equity in that. You know, so implementation, you know, will, I think, make all the difference in the world. Right. The tail, tail of the tape is going to be how it's actually carried out. Right. Um, I am curious, though, you know, one of the things he's doing certainly in San Francisco is enlisting uh, the National Guard and the CHP in this process. And, you know, 
communities of color have a fraught relationship with some of these you know police units and and I I'm just curious how how uh, that might be perceived you know when you're already maybe having struggles uh, finding common ground with those entities you know is this is is that maybe the the right thing to be doing here when you're trying to reach a community yeah that's a great point that you raised um you know it, you know if things were perfect if we live in a society where people were treated fairly and not based on kind of where they live or what they look like. I, I think the situation could work, but I think to your point, given the history and the relationship and maybe the level of mistrust that exists and, um, you know, the stress, just the presence of that kind of force in your community can cause for folks. I mean, I know how I feel if I get pulled over for something, just like a speeding ticket or which I don't do, but I got pulled over once for a headlight that was out. And I know, and I remember very vividly the stress that that caused me when I was doing absolutely nothing but minding my own business driving home. And um, I can't imagine if you're having armed officers in the National Guard, you know, invade basically a community to prevent these kinds of things from happening and what it could result in um, just based on other incidences that we've seen. And even just you know, retaliation that could potentially ensue because of that, especially now that, you know, anyone and access to guns are so easily available for anyone, pretty much. You know, the state has committed quite a bit of money to this. And I know we talked about this a little bit earlier, but I want to just circle back to it a little bit. Um, you know, is this a problem that can be solved with money? I mean, you know, that's that's the old joke, right? Just add money and that <laughs> to fix things. But you know, again, I'm I'm drawing a little bit on my experience covering this uh, around the country a little bit. And if money could solve it, then it would have been solved already. I mean, this is a really significant uh, issue to yeah. deal with. Is the money alone going to be the factor here? No. And, and to your point, you know, as I was thinking about our conversation earlier today, and yeah, it's like putting a Band-Aid on a, a situation that needs more than just a Band-Aid, maybe more like a surgical procedure, but really looking at when I, why is this happening to begin with? Obviously, you know, prescription drugs have, um, or at least in this case, you know, opioids have uh, been um, made available to people when there could have been other alternatives to dealing with pain. I think and there are some acute situations where maybe it was necessary, but not as a sort of common practice, right? Um, and also just knowing the dangers associated with the opioid crisis, I think could have prevent, been prevented in the first place. Um, but I, I would love to really kind of peel the layers of the onion back and, and, and better understand like why is this happening other than the accessibility or the degree to which the drug has been described? Is there something else going on that is driving this behavior and addiction? Um, do we need um, more mental health interventions or resources and support available in communities to kind of um, go along with this program and this sort of intervention that the governor has proposed? You know, I, I'd like to see a more comprehensive approach to this as opposed to, you know, um, just kind of throwing money at it. And I think even the grants for education, testing and recovery. Um, 
I think is important, but I think really trying to get to the root causes of why is this happening so much and why is it so pervasive in our communities? I would really love to know the answer to that question. And I'm a big proponent of like getting to the root causes of situations as opposed to kind of throwing money at it. Um, Because even with, when we talk about health disparities, right? There's been tons of money spent on research, on programs and projects to address health disparities that exist in communities of color. I've been part of many and it's the work I do every day, but we're still having this problem and the problem is getting worse. And the question is, you know, why is that, right? And we're trying to do this work within a healthcare system that in and of itself is already broken and inefficient. You know, when we look at the U.S. healthcare system, you know, we spend the most per capita on healthcare than any other developed nation. We have the worst life expectancy at birth than any other developed nation. You know, we have the worst outcomes on average when you look at other developed nations. Even when it comes to maternal health outcomes, there are developing, undeveloped country, countries sometimes do better at that than we do. So we're trying to, you know, improve upon uh, outcomes for individuals within a system that is already broken. And then when we, you know, think about what has been missing from this work, you know, I often say, you know, getting to the root cause of this and understanding why we have inequities to begin with. And unfortunately, this country was not built on equitable opportunities. That was the understatement of the podcast. (laughs) Yes. I mean, it was not. So like, yes, you know, we have to acknowledge the big elephant in the room, right? And kind of why this is happening and continues to happen especially again, after there's been so much money spent on research projects and programs to address health disparities in communities of color. Um, And so, yes, you know, racism and racial bias and and all of that is embedded within our society, our communities, and within the healthcare system itself. You know, our our former uh, Surgeon General for California, I believe, the first surgery general, uh, she had a background in, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right, but ACEs, A-C-E-S. Yes, and adverse childhood experiences, yes. Yeah, and it's pretty clear that experiencing racism as a child is a pretty negative experience. And, and pretty traumatic, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's going to have long-term repercussions, aside from the fact that then if you're in a black or brown community, you're more likely to to be at lower economic status. I mean, it's not guaranteed, but it's more likely. I think all that is going to how it's going to bear fruit down the road. And when you talk about throwing money at it, well, unfortunately the money is getting thrown at it now instead of 20 or 50 or hundred years ago when really we should have been fixing these sort of problems. So I, I hate to say this, but you have your work cut out for you. But oh, Don't I know it. Yes. Yeah. Well, Rhonda, really quick too, just one more uh, really quick question along those lines. I'm always curious, is there um, any data that shows that the, uh, health professionals are more likely to prescribe an opioid to a person of color than they are to somebody who isn't a person of color? Is that, is that a quicker fix that they throw at them? Um, that's a great question. I am not familiar. It, it, it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist, but I'm not familiar with that in particular. I do know that when it comes to well, let's say, let's give this example. Sometimes when there's someone showing up at the emergency room who legitimately is complaining about pain, like if someone is a sickle cell patient and legitimately, you know, complaining or suffering from pain, 
unfortunately, that individual often is denied pain medication because the assumption is, oh, they're just seeking drugs, right? And so even some recent information that has been published is about the fact that, oh, someone is a sickle cell patient and they have to go to the ER because of their pain. They have to think about how they need to dress when they show up. Um, And that is just, I mean, unthinkable, right? Um, But if they happen to have an acute situation and they happen to be in a pair of sweats and a t-shirt and go to the ER, you know, right away, then just because of how they show up and who they are and what they look like, they're judged. And that judgment leads to decisions about their care and treatment. Other, you know, instead of really understanding what is the cause of this person's pain to begin with and why is this person having pain and, you know, fulfilling the, uh, their duty to do no harm to patients, but really to care for individuals, no matter who they are or what they look like or how much money they have or any of that, right? So that I do know. Um, so it may be more that than, um, you know, other situations where they're just given, you know, the drugs. So I think accessibility or how, you know, there's a lot of drugs and fentanyl and, you know, other bad things along those lines that are on the street that are available that way. So I think maybe um, access maybe happens that way more often than through prescription uh, or, you know, as a common practice. But don't quote me on that. That's just kind of what I, I think might be happening, right? Right. I think you actually have studies that back that up that uh, Black people in emergency room care and in medical care are less likely to be prescribed drugs or they're perceived to be able to be handling the pain. Able uh, to tolerate pain more. Exactly. And, and so, unfortunately, that's still taught in medical school, right? Yeah. So uh, that's not great. And then my suspicion is there if people cannot get pain relief through their doctor or their pharmacy, then they're probably going to get it somewhere else, uh, which is not yeah. great. So not uh, safe either. Yeah. No. Yeah. Uh, well, that's been the root of a lot of this, of this problem is the, the overprescribing in the legitimate health uh, care environment that then leads to people accessing these medications in a non-legitimate healthcare environment. It's, it's, we've seen this story over and over and over again. I I know situations where these are not personal friends of mine, but I know situations where people have had prescription um, opioids given to them and then turn kind of have not gotten it really for themselves, but for other people and other, you know, uses. So um, things like that do happen, unfortunately. Right. Well, Rhonda, thank you very much for joining us today. It's a very enlightening uh, conversation, uh, certainly an issue that uh, is going to bear watching going forward, especially with the budget situation being what it is, how uh, these monies that have been um, uh, spoken, but uh, we'll see how the allocation actually goes as the as the year goes on and how uh, the governor's plan works out with uh, using the CHP and the National and the uh, yeah the National Guard um, to deal with some of this as well. So all eyes forward, right? Yep, sounds great. Oh, Rhonda, thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for having me today, and thanks for the opportunity to be here. Well, okay. Well, now it is time for our favorite segment of the week, uh, where we go to who had the worst week in California politics. The worst week. Worst week. Worst week. Uh, there's definitely some options 
And uh, to help us suss it out just a little bit, we're joined by a special guest, uh, Mackenzie Mays of the Los Angeles Times, who covered the uh, marathon suspense file hearings yesterday in the Assembly and the Senate, or at least some of them. I know you didn't, they didn't subject you to all of them, but uh, thanks for joining us, Mackenzie. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we we are we should be used to this ritual by now, but it is a long day always. Absolutely. Well, and of course, Tim Foster is here still with with us. So, Tim, let's let's think about it because there's definitely some options here. Um, but look, I guess let's start with the, the suspense file losers because the, let's face it, if you've gone through this far to get a bill out there and uh, it dies in suspense, that probably ruined your week. Uh, Mackenzie, why don't you throw a few at us that maybe were surprising to you that maybe we thought we're going to make it that didn't? Yeah, so I guess you could say there were hundreds of losers, um, technically almost 300 losers. Um, but that's sort of the point of the suspense file, right? This is a it's supposed to be a price tag thing where you just um, are able to quickly um, kill bills without discussion. It's probably one of the more opaque processes we have in the state legislature. Um, and I think that element of surprise you're talking about is what it's all about in a way, because you are able to kill something quietly instead of sort of having to speak about it and explain yourself and debate it. So the the quote unquote losers are surprising because they're often winners in California on a normal day. Um, so anti-poverty advocates lost on tax credits they wanted for poor children, um, gun control advocates lost out on some of the legislation that they had hoped to continue. Um, police reform activists, um, even environmentalists, you know, lost some of the bills that they had hoped to get over that hurdle yesterday. Yeah, and those are usually a group of people. I mean, if you throw labor unions in there, people that usually do quite well in California in the legislature. Exactly. Yeah. And, and so people, you know, we talk a lot about what on paper the suspense file is and what it actually sometimes ends up being is, you know, how can we sort of drop this quietly without having to, you know, admit it in a way. Well, and the uh, the environmental bills were really interesting because, you know, we're, we're in the midst of this transition or, you know, somewhere in the midst of this transition to EVs, right? That's the goal anyway. And everything is about climate change. And yet, um, there was a bill that got killed that, uh, you know, would have held oil and gas companies liable for some of the health problems that are experienced by people who live next to those facilities, the wells and the drilling projects and all that kind of a thing. And that was a little surprising to me. I thought that was one that really had a shot, but, but apparently not. Yeah, it's it's a rare day that you see, you know, a, a quote unquote win for fossil fuels in California, right? And, and that's what we're seeing. And and so in this process, they can say, well, it cost X amount, and, and that's our threshold, and we're in a budget deficit. So um, that was sort of the lens to this time, where we aren't usually looking down this sort of hole in the state budget, um, and so people could say we're under even more pressure than usual. Yeah, I we, think this is the first time many of these legislators have ever legislated under a, a deficit. I mean, right. you know, this That's is- That's where I was going too. I mean, we, we're, 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 we're in kind of uncharted territory for a lot of these people. You know, there's some, been so much term, turnover in the last few years, uh, but anyone that's been here for a while, you know, like really enjoyed really good surpluses. And, you know, even when we thought there was going to be a massive budget hold because of COVID, it turned out- 
there'd be a budget surplus th- until this year. So now everybody uh, is in this situation. It feels kind of new. Um, but it wasn't always, even though this was appropriations and it's always about the price tag, uh, you know, in theory about the price tag, there were some other bills that, that again, it seemed unusual here in California. One of them uh, was uh, an abortion related measure from Pilar Shivo that died that I, I was a little surprised. You know a little bit about this one too, and maybe you could you could give us a little background here. Yeah, so it is, you know, we know that we have these um, big abortion bill packages that have multiple bills in them that usually have, you know, complete success. There's not much concern ever, not in this Democratic majority legislature. Um, so these bills have had a really hard time in the past too. Crisis pregnancy centers are clinics that sometimes claim to do things like abortion pill reversal and things that are not FDA approved. Um, They are often religious affiliated. And so there are a lot of people who want to rein those places in, but you get into a really legal scholarship argument about the First Amendment. And so there's a long history about that specific type of legislation. I would argue that I don't think it was a cost thing. I think a lot of people would say there's a lot of other issues to sort of debate about that. The attorney general himself has taken this on and last year launched a sort of hotline for people to to dial in and say, hey, I I feel like I've been duped by one of these centers and, you know, can you help me? So there is a long uh, story that goes with those kind of bills, but it did really raise some eyebrows to say, wait a minute, you're telling me, you know, a, a democratic abortion bill failed here, you know? So uh, oftentimes you'll see a bill die and on its face, you'll say, what the heck, right? (laughs) But once you get into it and you talk to the people who are opposing it or not even opposing it, but are trying to figure it out and find the smartest path to victory, they might say, hey, we need to pull this and try harder next year. Um, Not because we don't believe in it, but because it's gonna be a, a tough battle. Well, speaking of that, I mean, the options are always, you know, you could uh, stall it in committee, you could pass it, you could also turn it into a two-year bill. Uh, We definitely saw that. There were several bills that were converted to two-year measures. There was a bill that was, uh, would have required cities essentially to develop plans to to, uh, serve their entire homeless population, and that got turned into a two-year bill. And that's another one of, you know, a homelessness bill. You would think, you know, those would have uh, a lot of uh, the wind in their sails here, but apparently not, right? There is a one thought, you know, to talk about the cost cutoffs, when we're talking about a state that has, even though we are talking about a deficit, but we're talking about billions and billions of dollars, right? So I think some authors of these bills um, who were alleged losers in this process would question, you know, was their price tag was that fair you know if you know one bill would have cost like 10 million 10 million is a lot to me but it might not be a lot to the the budget handlers you know that bill would have helped more people who are wrongfully convicted of crimes to seek compensation from the state after they're exonerated you know it would have cost between 10 million and 15 million I can imagine people look at that and say, hey, in the scheme of things, that's worth that. But that's one of those bills that that died yesterday. You know, I'll tell you, uh, if you really want to look at who lost out yesterday, too, I, I think um, there were a couple of measures that would have 
There was uh, striving for pay, greater pay equity for uh, part-time faculty in, uh, in the higher education system, and they, they didn't get anywhere. Um, and that's really a bummer. I have lots of friends from my grad school days who are, you know, what we call the frequent flyers, you know, going back and forth to various community colleges. And, uh, you know, that's a rough life. And uh, I think there were a couple of bills that would have uh, given them pay raises that went nowhere. So once again, <laughs> the lowest on the totem pole, the faculty totem pole anyway, uh, definitely came out on the short end of the stick there. So I hate to call them losers because I love many of these people, but uh, they definitely lost out big yesterday. I think something I've really had my eye on is when we're talking about rising cost of living and inflation, and we're always talking about the two Californias and this equity gap that we're living with every day. Um, the Democrats have, have really vowed and made a, a promise to protect our progress is what they often say. So they, you know, even in downturns and bad times, we won't cut the social safety net. It is mostly their promise. And that's so far been true. Um, I think that anti-poverty advocates that I talk to have, have breathed a sigh of relief with every budget proposal. Almost, you know, not completely, but you know, yesterday there were some bills that would have really extended those programs that failed. You know, um one bill would have extended the child tax credit um, and would have allowed any ch child. Right now, that tax credit program only benefits children under six. Um, this would have said, we don't care what age your kid is. We still think they need this extra money. It died. And it would have cost a lot of money to the state. You know, we're talking about 700 million a year. So, well, in getting away from the uh, suspense file, there were other things that happened this week that uh, where folks' oxes got gored. And at the very end of the week, uh, Governor Newsom announced plans to uh, introduce bill of reforms to CEQA. And I don't, even environmental groups, I think are starting to back off from CEQA, not all of them, but most of them realize that, that when you have, you know, when you have bike paths being prevented by CEQA, there's a problem. Um, so there are, any any thoughts on that? Is there anybody in particular that's getting uh, getting screwed by these by the potential for a sequel reform that can be pretty heavily pushed by Governor Newsom to anyone? Well, I think the NIMBY folks are definitely not happy about this. I mean, if you look at how uh, how often sequel over the years has been used to kill good projects too. I mean, look, I get it. I mean, uh, I'm I'm kind of a tree hugger myself, but I will just tell you that you know sequel has been a real detriment to building more housing stock in California. And it's created one of the really big problems we have in this state, whether it's affordability, lack of lack of housing, uh, just in general. So, um, you know, I think we've all seen it coming for a long time. And it's a big a part of a, a lot of things, too, not just the homelessness issue, but certainly also the energy, the transformation to zero emissions. So, you know, it's going to have a big housing component, too, and projects needing to get built. and. Um, you know, if you can give CEQA waivers for things like, I don't know, football stadiums, I'm sure a lot of people think there's other projects that uh, deserve some kind of special consideration. We'll, we'll say that. I feel yeah. like that happens when you talk about things like CEQA. I'm always impressed that people in Sacramento can just sort of talk casually about really complex policies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, well, and then the biggest, for my money, maybe the worst week of all, uh, was California Senator Dianne Feinstein, who returned to the Senate 
everyone, I think, well, all the Democrats and Californians, I think, in general, were excited to see her back representing the state, uh, you know, back in the spot on the Judiciary Committee. However, uh, this week, there have been stories breaking that she's actually not in great health and that uh, her, she's actually got some more serious health issues that were not earlier disclosed. And even people like Senator Claire McCaskill, who been a longtime supporter of Diane Feinstein, are suggesting that maybe she is tarnishing her legacy by holding on here. So not a great work week for her, not a great week for the Democrats in the Senate uh, that are hoping that to move past this issue. And this issue is, is, you know, getting more front and center. Yeah, my coworker flew to DC to, to do this story, you know, and um, I think it's a really difficult conversation and it's an important conversation. Um, you know, she's 89 now, she's in a wheelchair and the, the news this week was that she has encephalitis or had a case of encephalitis, which is a swelling of the brain. So, you know, um, I think it's really difficult for her team to sort of tread that tread that line and, and, and try to talk about what she cares about as, as far as democracy goes, but there, there are physical things that people are, are seeing there. Um, and so I, I think everybody's trying to use sort of an empathetic, I guess I shouldn't say everybody, <laughs> but some people are trying to use an empathetic lens with this while also having some serious concerns about her, her ability to do the work that, that voters um, voted her in to do. Absolutely. And, you know, when, you, when the audio and video came out of the interaction that we first saw reported, I mean, it was painful. It was painful because you know, whatever whatever side of the aisle you're on, I think we all could agree that Dianne Feinstein has been a towering figure in the last 50 years of California politics, right? From San Francisco to, to Washington. And it is sad to see what appears to be somebody in a state of decline that is becoming very, very obvious. Now she's become you know, the the center of this firestorm over whether she should resign or not. And, you know, the whole argument over ageism and et cetera, et cetera. And but, you know, I think there's also a, a, a number of people who remember the essentially, um, and again, through their own lens of the Ruth Bader Ginsburg situation where, you know, maybe if she had stepped aside earlier, things would have been very different with the Supreme Court. And of course, that has a lot of people quite gun shy about what could happen uh, here in this situation. It's not quite the same thing, but um, so I think if, if you want to look at the worst week, I think everybody around this is having a, a bad week. You know, nobody wanted to see Diane Feinstein be in this situation, right? Um, again, whatever side of the aisle you on, are on, you'd have to admit, if, even if you're a Republican, that she's, she was a formidable opponent and it, it, it can't possibly be good just to see her in this <laughs> And in this condition. And now, you know, you just hope whatever she gets better because, you know, she deserves a shot to go out more on her own terms, but it just seems more and more likely that that may not happen. You know, yeah. I'm not Nostradamus here, but I, I, it does not look promising right now. We just have to see what happens. Yeah. It's a, it's a sad situation. Um, so we had no shortage of, of, candidates for the worst week this week between all the people whose bills did not go anywhere. And, uh, and we'll, I think you, I like your idea that the NIMBYs did not have a good week. I mean, there's a declining number of NIMBYs. It seems like every day in, uh, in California, but 
but you're right. They probably did not have a good week. And then Feinstein and her staff and her supporters uh, clearly did not have a great week. So I don't know. I don't know that we have to pick one particular one. Maybe we'll leave it to our audience to pick who actually had the worst, the worst week. But I think those are all good candidates. Well, Tim, I'll add, I'll add one in that context. If, if as reported, Governor Newsom called her and essentially got the brush off. I mean, for a governor of the state of California to get a brush off like that, if that really happened as it was reported, um, that can't have been a good moment for him. Oh, he got a brush off from Diane Feinstein? And, and well, as was reported, he called her, her phone and an aide answered, and then he never got a call back. So we don't know if she didn't get the message or she opted not to, what have you. But when you're the governor, people return your phone calls, right? Even 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 towering political figures in history call you. You're the current governor of the fourth largest economy in, in the world. People return your call. So let's add him into the mix, if if we may. I think I think that's a that's not a um, that's not a positive on his end. He probably didn't feel too good about that. No, but you know, to be honest with you, I wouldn't want to be Governor Newsom if it does fall to him to appoint a successor to Diane Feinstein, where she is clearly not happy about going. That really puts him in a bind. Maybe you have Adam Schiff, who's already declared, uh, Katie Porter, who's already declared, Barbara Lee is already declared, and uh, somebody's here. There's a lot of people that are going to be unhappy. So, uh, you know, unless he decided to name a placeholder candidate, uh, which I can't see him doing, that would be a. I mean, I suppose it'd be nice to have that sort of power, but it'd also be very stressful for me. I don't know. Well, what, what do you think, would you just want to do that? I, I personally would not. Would not want that. No, I wouldn't want to be in that situation either. And I think it might be a smart thing, a good lesson for future governors and presidents and everyone else to not state your intentions of uh, and lock yourself into a corner on who you might choose to fill these kinds of positions, you know, well in advance because circumstances then change. And now if he doesn't appoint, if, if for some reason she had to resign tomorrow and he doesn't he doesn't uh, appoint a a, uh, a black woman. He's going to come around as having the worst week in California. He's going to get vilified for it. So, I mean, learn to play poker, man. Keep your cards a little closer to the vest, my friend. That would have been a smarter play from my perspective. But he didn't ask me beforehand. I'm not really sure why. He just opted not to seek out my counsel. So, you know, this is what happens, though. Uh, Newsome watchers, I think, have noticed a pattern. Of, you know, he he will say things, <laughs> and and people will remember those things. And I don't know if his team always appreciates that because you know people don't forget when you say something like um, that you want to nominate a black woman to the U.S. Senate. So um, I think that happens uh, kind of a lot for him. Yeah. Oh yeah. A- advocacy groups in particular are a lot like little kids. If you say it, you're going to have to do it because they're never going to let you forget it. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right well Mackenzie Mays thank you so much for coming in and, and talking to us about the suspense file yeah thanks for having me yeah come, please come back and join us again in the future all right thanks so much all right take care everybody the Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California if you enjoyed today's episode we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review thanks a lot and we'll see you next week <laughs>